1 Samuel chapter 8. Of all people, we Americans should understand that it was not a good idea for Israel to appoint a king. (laughs) For America was born out of an outrage over the king of England's abuse of power. Author Walt Whitman sums up our country's origins. For many a promise sworn by royal lips and broken and laughed at in the breaking, the blows struck revenge. Heads of the nobles fell. People scorned the ferocity of kings. People do eventually scorn the ferocity of kings. Israel, though, wanted to be like their neighboring nations. They wanted a king and all that comes with one, a throne and a crown and a scepter and a court and a coronation and the pomp and circumstance. Rather than have faith in the invisible God, the Hebrews wanted a visible ruler on which they could fix their aspirations and their hopes on the field of battle. While facing the enemy, the Israelis assumed that it would be easier to rally around a leader they could see than to rally around their God. From the outset, God wanted to be Israel's king. His ideal form of government was that of a theocracy, not a monarchy. But Israel ignored God's warning about the ferocity of kings and persisted in the demand for a king with clay feet. Finally, God gave in and gave them a king, a king that they would regret again and again and again. Chapter 8 begins. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. What happened to Eli befell Samuel. His sons became sleazeballs. They were supposed to be judges, but they acted more like crooks. They ended up subverting justice rather than upholding it. Why this happened, we're not told. We are told what happened to Eli. It was said of Eli that his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. Eli failed to discipline his sons. What Samuel's problem was, we're not sure, but it could be that he neglected his sons. For you remember at the end of chapter 7, we're told that Samuel was a circuit preacher. You remember that? That his ministry looped among four different cities, apparently travel was a part of his job. It could be that Samuel didn't spend as much time with his sons as was necessary. I love this quote by Wade Horn. He says, My father was a great dad. I didn't always think so, of course. When I was growing up, I mostly thought of him as an overbearing, autocratic, stick-in-the-mud whose main mission in life was to make mine miserable. But I have since come to realize that he had one great quality... He was there. Someone once said 90% of life was just showing up. My dad showed up. I look back on the good I've done for my kids and I now realize that my greatest impact was not my father knows best wisdom or my cleverness 
or my coolness or my coaching ability. The greatest service I've done my kids is that I've stayed in the mix. I've just been there. I've been involved. I've loved them so much. I've always said if my kids grow up to be nutcases, it's going to be because they spent too much time with me. I just wanted to be there. This is the greatest service a father can do his kids. Stay in the mix. Don't make the mistake, Dad, of thinking that your kids come with a pause button. They don't. Don't think you can just push pause, go off, do your own thing, then return and re-hit the button. Pick up where you left off. That, it doesn't work that way. Never forget, kids spell love, T-I-M-E. Now that's assuming that Samuel made any mistakes at all. Why is it we always jump to the conclusion that just because a child ends up a rotten apple, it must mean that the parents have done a horrible job? Why is that? Hey, apply that logic, and then what are you going to say about God? God was the perfect parent, and yet Adam and Eve were still rebellious against Him. Understand, every human being, your child included, is a free moral agent. He or she has the right to choose which team they're going to play on. Holiness isn't hereditary. Godliness isn't genetic. Parents can provide their kids a great start, but it's up to the child to make the right choices. Well, why it happened, we're not sure. But Samuel's sons ended up more like crooks than judges. And they became Israel's excuse to demand a king. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. In other words, you're going to die off, and we don't like what we're going to get after you. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Understand, Samuel's sons were just an excuse. Israel's desire for a king really had predated Samuel. You remember back in the book of Judges, they wanted to crown Gideon. Their real motive is in verse 5. Make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Famous Bible commentator G. Campbell Morgan, he calls this the supreme wrong. He writes, Israel had been chosen to be unlike the nations, a people directly governed by God. The word Israel, in fact, means governed by God. God called Israel to be holy, to be set apart, to march to a different drummer. They were to keep in cadence with God's will and wisdom. Instead, the Hebrews muttered a familiar refrain that every parent has heard a million times. Everybody else is doing it. Why can't I? Verse 6 says, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and God reveals to Samuel Israel's root problem. Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. What sad words to fall from God's lips. The people's request for a king had nothing to do with Samuel or his sons. Apparently, trust and obey was just too straightforward. You see, a monarchy provided more options. You can hide stuff from a visible king who can't read your mind and heart. 
Oh, a king's judgments can be debated and amended. God's laws are absolute. A king and his court can be manipulated politically. Favors can be gained. Oh, God is just. Israel wanted a system to follow rather than developing a relationship with God. So the people swapped trust and obey for a chain of command and the play of politics and the rights of succession. They rejected God for human government. In verse 8, Samuel is told that the nation is now treating him in the same manner they've treated God. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, the Lord says, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them that the behavior of the king who will reign over them. God is going to comply with their request but not before he warns them about the ferocity of kings. Israel's going to get their monarchy, but here's what they have to look forward to. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over the thousands and captains over his fifties. Will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest. And some to make his weapons of war and equipments for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. Understand, the evil of big government is about to invade Israel. You know, while God was king, government was simple and streamlined. Oh, God might appoint a judge every now and then, but generally speaking, God was enough. But with the form, this form of human government, expect bureaucracy and lots of it. For instead of the king serving the citizens, what ends up happening in human government is citizens are needed to serve the king. And that's not all. God doesn't need to eat nor pay the rent or entertain foreign heads of state, he's God, or back up his supporters for their political support, or pay back his campaign contributors. God doesn't have to do anything of that like that. The ferocity of kings, though, includes taxes. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants, And build Gwinnett County Parks. (laughs) And what are these things they're doing now? These little walkabout little areas, you know? Whatever. And he will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. The king you crave is going to become your ball and chain. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the king will not hear you in that day. And you will cry out in that day. Hey, before you know it, Israel will want to throw tea in the harbor. Trust me. (laughs) Before you know it, they're going to have to live with a king. 
And as the old saying goes, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. History records the reign of very few benevolent dictators, very few kind kings. It's difficult for even a good man, you see, to handle power and authority afforded a king. And over the next 500 years of the 42 kings who will rule over both the northern and southern Hebrew kingdoms, only nine of those 42 are going to earn a positive approval rating from God. Remember Israel's mistake. The nation wanted to be like all the other nations. Peer pressure was Israel's downfall. The Israelis wanted to be like the Joneses. That was their mistake. Hey, as I tell my kids, just because your friends want to stick their head in the oven and bake their brains doesn't mean you have to do the same. No way. If God forbids it, there's a good reason it's forbidden. Israel is going to have to learn their lessons the hard way. Guys, God doesn't want us to go with the flow of this world. He wants our lives to draw a contrast. We're to be governed by God, not winging it on our own. God wants us to rise up and be different. God wants you to be loyal to the covenant you've made with Him, to be different in your approach to life. We need the gumption to stand up and stick out for Jesus. Following God is trusting that His way is best even, listen to me, even when you're the only one in the room who thinks so. But Israel rejects the faithfulness of God and chooses the ferocity of kings, verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. Chapter 9 begins. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becheroth, the son of Ephiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. This Kish was a wealthy landowner, and he was a man of clout in Israel. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel, not a more handsome guy in all of Israel than Saul. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Scan the crowd and you could always spot Saul. He was always head and shoulders above everybody else. He was a head topper. If NBA basketball had been around in Saul's day, this guy would have made millions. And then after his career, he could have parlayed his stardom into a movie career because he was choice and handsome. In fact, we're told there was not a more handsome person among all the children of Israel than Saul. Here's a man who was literally tall, dark, and handsome. Imagine this man with leading man's looks, with an NBA center's height, 
My, oh my, here's a hunk that can dunk. (laughs) And he did end up playing, I guess. I guess if he had been playing in the NBA, you know what team he would have played for, don't you? Not the Hawks. (laughs) You know what team he would have played for if he'd have played in the NBA? You know that, don't you? The Kings. (laughs) The Kings, yeah. You know, I was working on this on the way over here tonight. If Delilah played in the NBA, you know what team she would have played for? The Clippers. That's right, yeah. How about Balaam? What team would Balaam have played for? The Wizards. The Wizards. Nicodemus. It's easy. Nicodemus would have played for the the Knicks. Nicodemus would have played for the Knicks. John the Baptist would have played for the Grizzlies. Oh, grizzly-looking guy. And since Peter and John were fishermen, you know what team they would have played for. The Nets. The Nets. Well, I tried. (laughs) Verse 3. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, Please take one of the servants with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. Kish sends Saul out on a roundup. To corral some lost donkeys. And so he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, and they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. Saul and his servants, they canvass a whole countryside. Their journey probably accumulated about a hundred miles in frequent flyer miles here. But no matter the hundred miles, they still ended up with no donkeys. When they had come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. Notice Saul is willing to stop short of the father's will and give up. This is going to be a reoccurring tendency in this man's life. Well, the servant said to him, Look now, there is in this city a man of God, the city of Zuf, and he is an honorable man. All that he says surely comes to pass. Let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. I mean, this guy's hooked up with God. Maybe we can find out from him where the donkeys are. Maybe God will reveal it. Then Saul said to his servant, But look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? We've got to give him a love offering. A man of God certainly would never charge for his services, but it would be appropriate to thank him in some way. What do we have for a love offering? For the bread in our vessels is all gone. Our canteens are empty. And there is no present to bring the man to the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again and said, Look, I have here at hand one-fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give that to the man of God to tell us our way. And then a footnote's added. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go to the seer. For he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. A seer was a mystic. He was a person who could see into the spiritual realm. God would give him glimpses into the world of angels and into the supernatural. Now then Saul said to his servants, Well said, come, let us go. And so they went to the city where the man of God was. 
And as they went up the hill to the city, they met some young women going out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? And if you're into puns, they they could have said, can we see the seer? Anyway, Saul bumps into this group of girls. Notice some young women. And there is a Jewish legend that suggests that the women wanted to talk to Saul. Why? Because he was so handsome. Well, apparently the girls sort of slow Saul down. Girls have slowed a lot of men down. (laughs) But that's another story. And he needs to be sped up here a little bit. And so verse 12, and they answered them and said, yes, there he is just ahead of you. Hurry now, for today he came to this city because there is a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. As soon as you come into the city, you shall surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up, for about this time you will find him. So they went up to the city, and as they were coming into the city, there was Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. It just so happens. Saul and Samuel end up in the same city on the very same day. A miracle of God's providence. Evidently, Samuel's circuit and Saul's servant combined to produce a divine appointment. One other point here. Samuel was headed to the high place to oversee the sacrifice. High places were elevated altars, usually associated with some kind of idol or fertility goddess. When Israel entered into the land, they were forbidden from erecting these high places or worshiping at these high places. Sacrifices were only to be offered at the tabernacle. But according to Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 12, when the ark was stolen by the Philistines, we talked about that last week, the tabernacle in Shiloh was destroyed. That's why during the time that the ark was kept in Kiroth Jerim, there was no tabernacle to worship in. They were sort of waiting for the temple to be built. And while the tabernacle was out of order, evidently God allowed sacrifices on these high places for a time. I guess the only condition was that a Levitical priest should supervise, and this is why Samuel is going up to the high place to oversee this sacrifice. As he's going up, He intersects with Saul. Verse 15. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow. Isn't that interesting? The Lord told Samuel in his ear. Has the Lord ever spoken to you and spoken something in your ear? Just whispered something to you at a critical time and a point of connection? Just whispered something in your ear. Sometimes the Lord does that. Saying, tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. God tells Samuel that tomorrow you'll meet a man from the land of Benjamin. And exactly 24 hours later, He bumps into a sheepless Saul. 
It was a God thing. And when Samuel sees that Saul, or sees Saul, the Lord speaks to him again in verse 17. There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me, where is the seer's house? It was their first encounter. Apparently he didn't know that Samuel was the seer. And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't be anxious about them, for they've already been found. Samuel sees what's troubling Saul. He puts his mind to rest. And then he announces, And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on all your father's house? Samuel gets excited. He knows that God has tagged this man Saul to be king and to satisfy Israel's desires. Saul will rally the nation to fight against the Philistines. Now you would expect Saul to be honored by this. To accept God's calling. But look at his reaction in verse 21. And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? I don't want the job, man. At first glance, it appears that Saul is being humble. But guys, I'm not so sure. Understand, humility and insecurity, they look a lot alike at times. But they're two very different animals. Humility, you see, is an others-centered attitude. I care so much about you that I'm not going to worry about me. But insecurity is just the opposite. It's the ultimate in selfishness. I'm so concerned about my image that I'm not going to dare step out and try to serve you and embarrass myself. Later, we're going to see plenty of reasons to believe that Saul was far more insecure than he was truly humble. Now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. There were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said to you, set it apart. And so the cook took up the thigh with its upper part and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Here it is, what was kept back, it was set apart for you. Eat, for until this time it has been kept for you, since I said I invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. Apparently the thigh made it a meal fit for a king. And when they had come down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the top of the house. It was nighttime. They were calling it a day. But they arose early. And it was about the dawning of the day that Samuel called to Saul on the top of the house saying, Get up! Wake up, man! That I may send you on your way. Now, I don't want to read too much into the text. But I think we find here another character flaw. Saul overslept. He lacked some godly motivation here. 
You would think that he would want to rise early, that he would want to spend as much time with Samuel as possible. This is his opportunity. But Samuel has to wake him up. Saul arose, and both of them went outside, he and Samuel. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on, But you stand here a while, that I may announce to you the word of God. And a private coronation of the first king of Israel is about to follow. Chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Now Samuel commissions the king by pouring out a flask of olive oil over his head. You remember the high priest was also anointed with oil. Olive oil was symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And the king would need the Spirit's power and presence and wisdom. Saul was the first of many kings who would be crowned with the anointing of oil. Have you ever watched a championship football game? You see an anointing take place right at the end of the game. You've seen it. It happens at every level. An anointing, similar to what we see here, happens at the end of the game. After the outcome has already been decided, the triumphant players sneak up behind the victorious coach and they dump a bucket full of ice-cold Gatorade on top of his head. He gets anointed with Gatorade. That's what an anointing is. The game is over. It's already been decided, and the coach gets anointed. And this is what the anointing of the Holy Spirit means to us. When the Spirit of God comes upon us, it should instill in us confidence and boldness. Oh yes, there's battles still to be fought, but in essence, when the Spirit is poured out upon you, the game is over. The power of the Holy Spirit is sure to overcome whatever might come towards you. You see, the cure for insecurity in Saul's life was the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It was the pouring out of the Spirit's power upon his life, that should have ended all of his insecurities right then, right there. Well, next, Samuel gives Saul a series of signs that will confirm his appointment. Remember, Samuel is working with an insecure person here, and he wants to sort of prop up his confidence, and so he he gives him sort of a string of signs that assure him that God is at work. He's trying to help Saul find his security and his identity in the Lord. Verse 2, when you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin by Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Again, Samuel is encouraging Saul. God will do for him what he can't do for himself. Notice this. Without Saul's involvement, without Saul's effort, what was lost was found. It was the work of God, not Saul. Lesson number one. Then you shall go forward from there and come to the terebinth tree of Tabor. There three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. 
and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. And notice the second lesson. God will feed Saul if he simply trusts in him and walks in his way. God will save Saul without any effort on his own part. God will feed Saul by the simple efforts of others if he just trusts in him. Two lessons. Have you learned those two lessons? And after that, you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is. And it will happen when you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a string instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them. And they will be prophesying a prophetic marching band. Can you imagine the music coming out of this group? An encounter with some praising prophets is the third proof of God's anointing. And then the fourth proof appears in verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you. And you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Saul. And he will turn your heart inside out. Here's an insecure person. Saul feels so inferior. I'm not up for this. He's always worrying about how he stacks up to the people around him. Suddenly the Holy Spirit comes upon him and enraptures him in this ecstatic praise. He finds himself praising God and prophesying among the prophets. He forgets about himself in a tsunami of God's love and power and presence and outpouring. Saul forgets about himself and he rejoices in God. Note the sequence of what happens to confirm God's blessing on Saul. What was lost is found. A hunger gets fed. A man joins in God's praise. He's filled and transformed by the Holy Spirit. And this is how God confirms His blessing on you and me. Jesus saves lost donkeys. Hee-haw! Hee-haw! And He returns us to our owner, does He not? Without our effort. You get that? He has ways of doing that Himself. He, he, He saves us through His work, not our own. Our spiritual hunger gets met when we come to Jesus. We're fed out of the abundance of another, our Lord Jesus. We're given a new song. A desire is born in us to join in God's praise. That's a result of God's blessing in our lives. And finally, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. I hope you've been. The end result is that we're turned into another man. Our focus is no longer on ourselves. We get caught up in God. Isn't this what turned a petrified Peter into a power-packed Pete. At the Feast of Pentecost, you remember, our high priest Jesus poured out the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon the infant church, and every man present that day was turned into another man. I think this is what we need today. This is what I need today. An outpouring of the Holy Spirit. A Gatorade bath with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit turns us from wimps into witnesses. He transforms us from little flickers into bright flames. Ask the Lord to pour out the Holy Spirit upon your life, not with an eyedropper, but with a full flask. Well, verse 7 tells us, And let it be when these signs come to you 
that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. And notice that oftentimes obedience to God is a spontaneous act. Obedience to God comes as the occasion demands. You know, God doesn't always give us our marching orders in advance. Sometimes He whispers in our ear something we might need to do or a place we might need to go or a person we might need to see. This is why we need to stay flexible and stay open and ready to follow the still small voice of God as He chooses to direct us. He says, You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you shall do. In chapter 15, we're going to find that Saul's refusal to wait on Samuel ends up to be his downfall. Here we already see it happening. (laughs) You know, you got to learn to wait on me. Verse 9, And so it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart, and all those signs came to pass that day. And when they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. And it happened when all who, who knew him formerly saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets that the people said to one another, What is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? The changes that God had worked in Saul were obvious to all. Everyone saw that he was now a different man, that God had got a hold of him, that the Spirit of God had come upon him. Are the people in your life saying that about you? That what's with, what's with the son of Flavio? What's with the son of Jay? What, what's with the son of Jeff? Yeah, they're a different person. Boy, God has worked in their life. God has changed them. He's turned them into another man. Boy, how we would want people to say that about us. And then a man from there answered and said, But who is their father? And therefore it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he went to the high place. Then Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To look for the donkeys. When we saw that they were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Tell me, please, what Samuel said to you. And so Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But notice what he didn't tell him. He left off the important stuff, did he not? about being king, but about the matter of the kingdom, he did not tell him what Samuel had said. Again, chalk it up to Saul's insecurities. He doesn't want to believe that God really wants to use him. And even after these multiple confirmations, he's still hesitant to trust God for this new post. Saul's attitude is a false humility in my opinion. You know, often we act humble, but we're really just covering up our unbelief. You know, it's easier to say, oh, God can never use the likes of me than it is to really step out in faith and trust God to use you. Sometimes humility can cover up for a lack of faith. Well, in verse 17, Samuel calls the nation to Mizpah for the public presentation of their king, a big moment. Then Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the children of Israel, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians 
and from the hand of all kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. But you have today rejected your God, who himself saved you from all your adversaries and your tribulations. And you have said to him, no, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. And when he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen. And Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. They go through all 12 tribes, all the families of Benjamin, all the sons of Kish. God marks Saul to be the king, and he's nowhere to be found. And recall, old too tall Saul wasn't an easy guy to miss. He stood head and shoulders above the crowd. Therefore, they inquired of the Lord further, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, There he is. Notice that. Even when you're hiding from everybody else, the Lord knows where you are. The Lord knows your address, trust me. And the Lord answered, There he is, hidden among the equipment. Saul is hiding from the call of God. He's hiding among the other stuff. Are you hiding among the other stuff of this world? God has a call on you. God wants to work in your life. He wants to send you and use you, do great things through you. But are you hiding among other stuff? Pastimes. Oh, I'm too busy. I'm on my job. You know, I've got a family to support. Are you hiding among the other stuff from the call of God? Rather than taking a step of faith, rather than trusting God to lead him and empower him, Saul is shrinking back from the very start. As I said earlier, humility and insecurity are two very different animals. True humility is an awareness of our inadequacies, and yet it trusts in God, and it rises up in the power of God to do the will of God. God prepared Saul for this day. It's obvious. He'd changed his heart. He'd made him a new man. But it's possible for God to change a man and that man to fail to act on the fact he's been changed. Sadly, this happens to believers today. We allow our fears and our insecurities to slip back in and keep us from being and doing what God intended. Saul failed to walk in the blessings that God had granted him. It was tragic. During World War I, a munitions factory had a huge banner that hung across the entrance. Emblazoned on the sign were the letters I-A-D-O-M. One day a visitor walked into the factory and noticed the sign. It was everywhere. It was on the doors. It was on the walls. It was in the halls. Everywhere he looked, there were these letters, I-A-D-O-M. Finally, he asked a supervisor what these letters meant. And the company supervisor explained, it's an acrostic for the phrase, it all depends on me. This was their motto. And I think we'll find over the next several weeks that this was Saul's motto. It all depends on me. Saul ignored the work that God had done in his heart. And he relied, relied on his own talents and his own attributes. And this is why his insecurities continue to paralyze him as he seeks to fulfill the calling God's placed upon him. Here his fears even cause him to hide at the very beginning of his administration. Finally, 
they retrieved their uncertain king. Verse 23. And so they ran and they brought him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. The problem was just getting him to stand up. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? That there is no one like him among all the people. So the, all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. Again, Samuel mentioned Saul's natural advantages. But Saul isn't tall enough to rise to the challenges that God will cause him to face. You see, Saul was tall in stature, but he was short on faith. Saul is an interesting character. A physical giant, but a spiritual midget. You know, Shakespeare once described King Lear by saying, I, every inch a king. That's the conclusion you would have drawn if you had simply looked at Saul. I, every inch a king. He looks so kingly, but looks can be deceptive. Saul had potential for greatness, but it was lost on his unbelief. Rather than trust God, he would shrink back. Rather than walk in the Spirit, he would act on his own impulses. Saul had the problem that many people today have. He was an externally motivated person. Saul was a reactionary who lived for other people's approval. Circumstances and opinions dictated his behavior. To Saul, perception was more important than principle. This was no doubt rooted in his insecurities. See, Saul had no internal compass. So the only way he could feel good about himself was to please the whims of other people. God wanted Saul, and he wants us, to be an internally motivated person. God wants us to be guided by conviction and virtue and heartfelt spiritual truth. You see, before his coronation, Saul was afraid and fearful for people. His insecurities caused him to appear humble. But when he had gained some success and some notoriety, we're going to find that he becomes enslaved to that intention. And he tries to hold on to that attention at all costs. You see, Saul was the same before and after he became king. To Saul, image was everything. When he lacked the power, he was fearful to assume it. But when he possessed the power, he's going to be fearful of letting it go. You may be like Saul. You've been called by God to step up and step out. Instead, you've shrunk back. You're hiding among other stuff. While God wants you to do a great work for Him, you need to be filled with the Spirit. That's what you need. You need to be anointed with a Gatorade bath of the Holy Spirit and then act on faith and walk by faith. There is a man who's going to come along a few chapters later who is internally motivated. And it's going to be interesting to contrast the two, David and Saul. Well, it's ironic, but Saul was a microcosm of the nation as a whole. It's been said a people usually get the leaders they deserve. An article in the U.S. News put it this way, We look on our leaders in despair, but our leaders are really ourselves. In other words, we select leaders that mirror our own deficiencies. Israel wanted a king because they were focused on the practice of their neighboring nations. God gave them a king who would be focused on other people's notions. 
Well, verse 25 tells us, Then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty. You remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses had given instructions to the kings before they even existed. He had told them not to accumulate three things, horses, wives, and gold and silver. God knew that all three, broncos, babes, and bucks, would lead the king astray. He would look to the cavalry to win his battles instead of God. He would lust for the girls, and that would replace a love for God. He would rest in his savings account rather than depend upon God's help. I'm sure Samuel's instructions included Deuteronomy 17 plus some. We're told he wrote it in a book and laid it before the Lord. Samuel wrote a manual on royal behavior. He recorded the kingly do's and don'ts and he set it aside and I'm sure it was referred to for many years to come. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeah and valiant men went with him whose hearts God had touched. But some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. First real test of Saul's administration occurs in chapter 11. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve you. You see, Jabesh Gilead was an Israelite city on the east side of the Jordan River. And they were vulnerable to these kinds of attacks. And so here the Ammonites come against them and they want to make peace. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you. It's really not, a, not much of a deal you'd want to agree to. He says, On this condition I will make a covenant that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. I'll make peace with you, but, but it's going to cost you all your right eye. You sign here and I'm going to pluck out each one. I'm going to take this knife here and I'm going to pick out your right eye. Peace for an eyeball doesn't sound like a very good deal to me. Peace for an eyeball is a steep price. I don't think I could see to do that. <laughs> you know, the right eye was chosen because with its loss, a soldier would be immobilized for battle. In ancient times, the left eye would be covered by your shield and the right eye would be focused on your opponent. And if your right eye were taken, the average man wouldn't be able to fight. That's why he wanted their right eye. Verse 3, Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hey, how about holding off for seven days? <laughs> Let us think about this. That we may send messengers, he's honest about his motives, that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel, and then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. I mean, your first offer is not really a good option for us. Give us a week. Let's see if we can find anybody who will fight, fight for us and fight against you. And then we'll talk about it. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news. And his anger was greatly aroused. He cares for the people. Saul is acting kingly at this point. 
And so he took a yoke of oxen and he cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. And when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. Large numbers of Israelis now rally around Saul. And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will go out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. They pose a fake surrender. And so it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. The Ammonites were trounced. Saul's approval rating goes through the roof. His popularity sweeps across the nation. Israel has a king and he has been victorious. And that's when somebody remembers those rebels who opposed Saul back in chapter 10, who refused to bring him any presence. Who is he who said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. How dare you oppose our king? But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Hey, this is not about me. This is about God and His glory. Saul wants nothing this day to overshadow God's deliverance. This is true humility here. The sad thing is it's seldom repeated in Saul's life. An older and a more jealous Saul will not treat David with this same graciousness. Well, then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And so all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Nobody really knew it at the time, but we've just seen Saul's finest hour. The rest of Saul's story goes downhill from here. Never again will he act as honorably. 